On an average day, I touch countless objects. Some I know intimately, like certain tools on my jewellery bench. Others I've come to accept in my life due to necessity, such as my mobile phone. Certain objects' presence is highly noticeable. That nice-looking but slightly uncomfortable pair of heels I wore the other day. Or other objects seem to pass through my hands without much consideration, often ending up in the pile of things I've labelled waste. I possess objects that have been touched by many and others that have only known my touch so far. It's hard to imagine who I would be without any of those objects. And as Jane Bennett says, each human is a heterogeneous compound of wonderfully vibrant, dangerously vibrant matter. If matter itself is lively, then not only is the difference between subjects and objects minimized, but the status of the shared materiality of all things is elevated. So, in a world full of objects and as makers of objects, the agency of objects is fascinating to me. Why do certain objects become valuable to us and others not? In a world where sustainability and sustainable making is a key consideration, can we reconsider waste? A maker who has been fascinated with the temporality of materials is Katie Gillam Hull, a maker of objects and jewellery who reflects upon found and archival materials and their capacity for encounter and for accumulating narrative through time. To talk about her views on waste, ponder materials and their stories, I'm excited to welcome Katie. Thank you so much for such a lovely introduction. So Katie, to start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do? So um, I would describe myself as an interdisciplinary crafts artist and I'm based in London. What that looks like is I make both jewellery and objects in a variety of materials. Uh, and like you said, it's it's often focused on this idea of our material encounter with these objects and inspired by historical or found items of my own. These collections are experienced sometimes through galleries or museum installations, but also most recently through my guided art walks in which we take the objects along with us to explore areas usually within London. So you are a jewellery artist, also an educator, and you've recently completed a master's in jewellery and metal. But what drew you initially to the subject of jewellery? Oh, it's a good question because I never meant to. <laughs> I, uh, I never wanted to work in jewellery because I come from a family of craftspeople and one of them works in jewellery, so I wanted to rebel. Uh, and I, I, I was always going to be a maker, but I, I wanted to be a textile artist. And I signed up for an interdisciplinary bachelor's. So I, I did contemporary applied arts, my BA. But the more I made, the more I found myself drawn to this kind of small scale, uh, really narrative form of jewellery that had such emotional depth and such kind of nuance to it. I love the way that Jewellery kind of draws you in. It has like a curiosity as an object. It makes you want to touch it and to kind of find out what it's about or uh, who it might belong to. And actually looking back on it, that's conceptually really relevant to my work. Facilitating that kind of curiosity in my work feeds into my teaching as well. You know, it brings me a lot of joy to share craft with people and to see them kind of find their own way of working with it. So your practice has predominantly features also found objects, which you 
not only approach perhaps as catalysts for pieces, but often end up including in your work. Could you tell us a little bit more about what kind of objects you have collected and used so far and how your process has developed in response to what you find? Yeah, of course. I mean, I've been collecting and working with found objects for nearly 10 years now. And so I've, I've collected a lot and a, a whole variety of items and work with them in a, in a lot of different ways. But I suppose the overarching type of material I'm drawn to are kind of fragmentary, often non-precious items made in ceramics and glass. That's the majority of my collection. And originally, I was really excited about that fragmentary nature because I quite liked the the question it proposed. You know, the the space left by having a broken object is immediately you want to know what was it originally like what's what what's the gone missing and how it sparks imagination so i really leaned into that in my early work and often made speculative fixings for it you know if, if i have the handle of a jug making the rest of the jug in silver for instance and kind of making up what it could have been often quite naively but that that kind of interest in how we react to found objects, that that narrative that grows out of imagination has always been at the core of my work. But uh, recently in my in my master's research, I've started to lean more towards noticing how the material in, incites that reaction. You know, before it was us putting our perspective onto the material, now I'm starting to see how material elicits that, how it creates that fascination. It's, it's a two-way street in a way. And I've started trying to showcase that power and that agency, as you were talking about earlier with that Jane Bennett quote. So so recently, my work has been about letting go and kind of collaborating with material, showcasing how it controls things. So um, practically, that looks like at the moment I, I make my own enamels from found glass. And so those enamels don't really want to be enamel. Anyone who's worked with enamel can can tell you how fickle it can be as a material, but particularly from home ground ones. So uh, I actually create these silver structures and designs and applying the enamel, it starts to kind of rupture and disrupt my silver designs and kind of and drag it in the process of enameling. And that's what's been showcasing that kind of material strength in my work most recently. So, yeah, it's grown quite a lot over time, but it's really exciting to see how it's it's always been interested in the same thing. It's always been kind of rooted to fascination with material. And so have you always collected objects, even when you were younger? Or is this something that was inspired by developing a practice? I think I've always collected. I mean, lots of makers and craftspeople are very obsessed with beachcombing, aren't they? I mean, it's a very curious nature that I think a lot of creators have. But I've always been collecting. And then one year, my first really found object collection happened when I was studying in Norway uh, in my BA. And then couldn't stop thinking about this collection of objects and found myself turning it into a final uh, graduate show. And here where I am now, 10 years later. <laughs> you must see your environment perhaps differently than other people. And you have previously also mentioned that you've organised walks for others to join you in exploring locations. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you look at things, what you see and what you try to achieve, perhaps elicit in these walks that you organise? I mean, as I said before, I've, I've always loved exploring and, and that curiosity of beachcombing and collecting. 
And so I also wanted to kind of share that feeling and to share this perspective of discovery. In particular, I quite like noticing small details that might be overlooked or being drawn closer to take a second look at things. Uh, so in the city, particularly in London, you'll notice a lot of kind of layers of architecture or surface design throughout the city, things that like old um, signs, kind of palimpsests of, of time and, and things that really you might not notice day to day. So being able to showcase that to people and to point things out, it feels quite adventurous, quite fun. But also there's a certain feeling with working with historical objects and with old materials that I really wanted to capture and facilitate. So you'll know it if you've ever worked with with like an archive, like holding something really old, you suddenly get this really strange sense of time. <laughs> like you're like you're very small all of a sudden and the world seems quite big. You get that as well with like big old standing stones or old buildings. And I really love that feeling and I wanted to create that. So doing these walks, we can start taking objects I've made out with us into the city in a way that I never really get to do before. You know, in a gallery space, you can't have that interaction. And it's a little bit of a different kind of accessibility and engagement than I've ever had before. And I, I really love, love the opportunity it gives me to meet the viewer as well. I've um, I've had stockists in the past and put my work in galleries and, and I love it and I love working with them, but not meeting the people who buy my jewellery feels really odd. So instead taking my jewellery on a walk with people and chatting and reflecting on the space, I don't know, it feels like a really exciting way to share my work. If you want to hear a bit about my most recent walk, um, the the piece I developed in the last year or so has been inspired by this glass Roman bead workshop in the city of London on Gresham Street, if you know it. And I started kind of speculating as to what if beads just kept coming back, you know, just as you get things washed up by the tides, like what if time washed up beads to this space? And if they did, what story would they tell? So I started making glass beads and making them out of found glass from the area. And as we explore the area, we reveal a bead from these gorgeous little boxes that I put them in and we start opening them up and sharing them and they spark stories of place and time and material yeah it's so different to the normal jewelry I, I made before and it's that's where my where my research is going actually I'm, I'm loving it I mean I heard you mention the term palimpsest would you mind sharing what that means in your practice yeah I mean originally palimpsests are are kind of where you can see writing coming through from like previous documents or you'll see that on like canvases and painting so quite a lot of the time people think of it as like a surface level thing uh from from literature but actually I think it's quite extended now and and I really like opening up this idea of the palimpsestic nature of the city but also of of like the layers of narrative in an object the way I can take a piece of glass that uh, maybe was an 18th century item and now I can melt it down and make something new out of it and knowing that it can keep doing that that it can uh, keep having layers and layers of narrative to them and you can kind of start seeing echoes of that through it it's um and that that can then be made into a beat that feels like it's echoing back to Roman times. You know, it it's it's for me a kind of echoing through material, uh, which I really enjoy. In in terms of that approach, it's quite different to the ideas we have about recycling. Oh yeah, yeah. Where you strip the nature of 
perhaps what is there and, and try and bring it back as close as possible to a, a virgin material. Could you share a little bit about that, what the benefits are of keeping these stories coming through? Yeah, of course. That's actually really interesting that you brought that up because it bothers me a lot that I will try and explain some of my, my work and say, well, I melted this glass down and they go, oh, so you're recycling. And like, well, on a very technical level, I have recycled some material but it's so much more than that <laughs> you know I've I've spent so much time researching and getting to know these objects and I've lovingly and kind of carefully reimagined and reworked them and, and it's a lot more expansive than that and I think when we when we reduce it down and strip it down to I can make a raw material and it can be anything uh, and it doesn't matter you start to lose that connection with material and that's quite scary to me and and well, I suppose what's scary is the way recycling is a very easy throwaway time. We're like, oh, it's recycled. And actually, we don't really have much connection with the way we recycle. It seems like a this kind of convenient green bin we can put our items in and, and kind of forget they exist. This object impermanence where we don't really care how they're processed or what that might look like environmentally, but also emotionally. You know, it, it, it speaks of a lack of connection to material that that is not the point in this project, but also kind of uh, concerns me on a greater scale. Not to say we shouldn't be recycling, but maybe be thinking about what that means on a larger scale. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And so just to follow on question from your works, like how do people respond? Like how do they react to being introduced to the work in that format? Uh, so it's really, really differs. So I've, I've taken lots of groups ranging up to like 15 people at a time. So you really don't know what you're going to get. And some people really get into it and they and they start noticing things too. And that's, I love that. You know, we're going on a walk and they've seen something that I've never seen on that road. And they found something and I start adding that to the next walk. And I feel like they're they're contributing and collaborating and they they really get on board. And then other people, there's there's a lot of kind of hopefully a kind of playful and kind of childish appreciation of of exploring again. Like it's not often you get to do that kind of thing. And I didn't want, I didn't want it to feel like a history walk, you know, like a guided tour where you you stand and you listen to someone tell you a story that you might, and you might drift off because it gets boring and you're not being really engaged, you know, by putting objects in people's hands um, and facilitating this kind of connection with the material, hopefully makes it come alive a lot more. So one of the things I do in my walk as well is as we reveal beads, we slowly thread them onto a silver chain I made. And everyone gets to wear the bracelet, but you have to pass it on to the next person. And so you'll find yourself with a stranger trying to put a bead on their bracelet and, and kind of clasp it for them. Because it's quite hard to clasp a bracelet on your own, especially a little um, bayonet clasp. And so you get strangers kind of meeting each other and having quite an intimate moment uh, as they share and pass on this jewellery and, and connect with each other. At least that's what I hope I can can keep doing. <laughs> <laughs> You've already given us a bit of an example, but could I ask for another example of an object that you found and incorporated into one of your pieces? What happened when you found the object? How much or how little did you know of its provenance and, and history? And what steps did you have to take to find out or did you not want to find out at all? What about the object attracted you and how did you go about deciding how you would incorporate it into a piece? One of the pieces I've used most recently, I actually found years ago. So I'll 
come I'll come back to the to the bead uh, walk just because that's what we were most relevant most recently talking about. So one of the items I found and used for that was uh, a mudlarked item on the River Thames, and I probably found it in like 2017 or 2018, and it was this really exquisite wine glass stem. So not not the full body of the glass, but just the stem and the flared out base. And it's a clear glass, but just how sea glass can be really beautiful and frosted. It had that same quality and was quite rough and scratched on the surface. But despite that, you could see it had this lovely like fluting on the stem and the base had these lovely like scallop edge. And it was just it felt it felt both so delicate and regal, but so found and raw because of the way it had been like tumbled through the Thames. Uh, and I had to pick it up. I, I loved it. I loved that it it had the, the bowl of the or the, the kind of body of the glass missing. And at the time, I wasn't working with anything like that, and it wasn't relevant to anything I was doing. I just had to pick it up. It was so delightful, and it still stood, if a little bit wonky. And I kept it. I kept it for for years until recently. I was thinking about this um, this area of London where beads are made, and kept thinking, okay, well, I, I want to work with glass and. And I want to find a way to incorporate previous found objects. And I started kind of collecting, uh, mudlarking my own collection, <laughs> you know, searching back through my own work. And this sparked a lot of interest for me because it, it felt like a really relatable object of like a, of a glass. And I wanted it to feel very relatable and kind of open up conversation around something that could have been used throughout time. So the way I worked with it was actually I smashed it up. And I melted it down and I turned it into this bead using lamp work as a technique. And lots of lots of grinding and polishing later have these really lovely glass beads, which are clear, but they have all these bubbles and inclusions in because it's really poor quality glass. And what I liked about this is when I when I chose to work with it, I did want to find out when this glass was from, but I just couldn't. Like it was so worn from the way it had been tumbled, like it was so sea glass, like you could barely identify it and I actually quite like that like, I like letting go a little bit of historical accuracy <laughs> and allowing space for imagination instead so a lot of the way I approach found objects is like that it's a bit of grounding in research but a bit of room for spontaneity and so this bead ended up being in the walk and I you know have a little vintage box that I reused to house it and then that's uh, part of one of the things that is revealed from my uh, jacket of curiosities, as I call it, which is like a walking cabinet of curiosity jacket that I made. So that's how I ended up being turned into a piece. And then we ended up bringing that bead out in a really fun environment. It was um, Guildhall in central London, if, if you've ever been. And it's this quite grand square. And actually, you wouldn't know unless you go in, but there's Roman ruins beneath your feet of an old amphitheatre. And you're surrounded by all these grand halls where Basically, it's like a palimpsestic layering area of festivities and of like and of celebration. So I was like, great, we need to get the wine glass out here. This is so relevant. <laughs> and then we ended up like cheersing with the little beads, you know, in the walk. <laughs> there is something to be said for the the way objects are seen in different contexts that they are brought out in, isn't it? And that is something your work plays with and invites even as well. Is that something you 
plan meticulously or you allow again also for that to happen as you go around those places? I do I do do a lot of planning so I've written a lot more than I think it comes across in my walks like I've done a lot of research and I've tried to script it in a way where I can be open to reflection and questions but I've got all of that script memorized or, or, or in notes ready should I need it but I do like having space afterwards you know maybe we stop in a spot and I share some reflections and some stories and some research um, but while we're handling the beads topics of conversation come up and I really like giving space for that as well so yeah I try to I try to find a balance for both. You have previously been known to engage in the practice of mudlarking you've referenced that you found your object there mm. could you tell us a little bit more about mudlarking where do you go to find materials and objects you mentioned the Thames is that the main place and are there places in the Thames that you think were the most interesting for you and what are perhaps the challenges you face when you are looking for found objects in your practice whether it be through mudlarking or other practices yeah so mudlarking if you don't already know or if listeners don't already know is where you walk the shoreline of the river Thames where at low tide searching for objects in the mud it's been done since the 18th century and probably earlier but that's one of the first uses of the word mudlark as a term and I've been doing that since yeah 2016 2000 till 2019 when I had a permit and I got into that by going on a discovery walk and just really falling in love with it because I was I'd recently finished a big project where I had worked with a museum using their archive and I suddenly found myself without inspiration so it felt like a an archive sitting there ready in London for me to explore. I really loved it. And I had a couple of favourite places on the river. One of those is Rotherhithe. It's a really beautiful area of London, but it just on the foreshore was so much wider and it felt really expansive and kind of open. And it's where I found one of my favourite items, which is a little medieval jug handle. Really, really proud of finding that. But the, the challenges I have as well is it's quite... Mudlarking was quite hard to find what I needed. So I was often going in thinking, oh, I'm looking for stuff for this project about bottlenecks and wouldn't find any bottlenecks that day. I would be terribly disappointed. And actually, that's kind of not how you want to be going about it. You want instead to create space to find and explore. So I've started, I started instead just picking up what was inspiring in the moment popping it in a box and then years later knowing I can come back to it because it'll all click into place one day you kind of you don't know when it will uh, fit that project and now as well that works because I don't have a mudlarking permit and, and can no longer get a new one due to restrictions that have been put in place so it's been quite a popular hobby and there has been some unsafe practice so they're currently pausing permits but that's kind of fine because I have such a big collection already I can kind of search through that yeah, I'd like to do more uh, work with museum uh, collections, though, because I really enjoy such a different uh, type of material. Uh, and they're also a little bit more curated and easy to explore. I'm not so. I love mudlarking, but I don't think I was a very good one. <laughs> I wasn't so fond of the going out in the rain and every kind of weather. I'm not I'm not as I'm not as uh, dedicated as the people who go out with their headlamps in the middle of the night to get the low tide. Uh, so actually it worked out well in the end it's kind of interesting to think about what you said about you looking for certain materials and in projects I've done before about urban mining and sort of thinking about 
inviting materials in to become part of your practice you you have to let go a little bit of what you are expecting to find whereas if you work with virgin materials you can exactly get what you want and but but there is something beautiful about that isn't it if if you invite a material in to come into play and this is definitely something I can see in your work how do you know what to collect when you are looking for something and it isn't what you are expecting to find yet you know that that is going to be the object like how does it speak to you I mean if I had the answer I would stop researching no um <laughs> so it's it was very I had to be very instinctive in the end um I had to go back to that little kid version of myself beachcombing picking up pretty stones you know I had to kind of see what does that spark interest in and ooh, look at the shape and the color of that and and go with that kind of instinct often as well picking things that I thought were practically like big enough to work with that weren't too fragile so there were some like practical concerns and um, I often liked the fragments that had a good story to tell as well you know if if it had a break in a really interesting area like the medieval jug handle I have the top of the handle and the way it connects to the body of the vessel but I don't have anything else and I really like that connection so I would pay attention to things like that but um, I think this is also why I wasn't a very good mudlark, because they wanted to find the most unique and historically important thing on the shoreline. And I wanted to pick up the thing that sparked interest in me, I suppose. And talking about mudlarking and not getting permits, it's quite interesting that that is considered something not everyone can engage in. And that meant now you have had to adapt perhaps some practices and learn something about that element of things as well do you have any reflections on sort of how we as a society sort of decide what is acceptable as a practice and what isn't with when it comes to object collection I I do find it quite uh, at times irritating the way permits are handled around mudlarking at least it irritated me more last year when I really wanted to get back into it and couldn't it is really interesting the way that materials that that wash up in in rivers and seas in a very organic way that are waste materials that are not wanted or loved suddenly become property of where they've washed up upon uh, and that the people who own that place can then control it and I do understand some of the logistical and legal elements of that but it, it feels quite odd that this is it feels like the contents of the river in a way should belong to the city <laughs> You know, and that 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 does sometimes bother me. But I also completely understand the, the way that they want to protect the environment. The, the foreshore itself is a historical and kind of archaeological site. So they it's been quite damaged by poor practice. And I've always wanted to, when I was mudlarking with my permit, always wanting to keep safe practice and, and really look after the local environment. So I, it's a really tricky one. I want I want it to be such so much more accessible and I want it to be that we can go beachcombing, but even some beaches are now being restricted from such like things like that too. It's, um, it also, it feels like, a, why shouldn't this be uh, accessible? Why can't I touch it? If, if a museum can open this up, if an archive can be so accessible, why can't, uh, and natural environments too. But yeah, <laughs> it's a bit of a shame. And in terms of archives, is there a sort of agreements you have to have with places to potentially work with materials or things that you find there? And 
And are there other places that you are currently investigating, such as a scrap store, for example, or? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, in the past, all the work I've done with formal archives have been under agreement. Yeah. So I've, I've been approached by them to make work inspired by their archives because they know I, I work with found objects. So that's been that's been amazing that they've opened up their archives to me. Some of them for just inspiration, but one small museum actually let me, they sent me the objects and let me make around them, which was really freeing. So it's great to work with great with curators like that who who want to play and, and um, have fun with it. But I, I try not to limit myself as well to just working in formal collections or mudlarking. I, like some of my recent stuff, I dug out of a bush in a in just in a park in London because it looked good. And then also I'm in searching eBay, you know, and antique stores and scrap stores. Like I have a collection of lace bobbins, which are 19th century hand tools. And I'm slowly building a collection of them from eBay and like contacting the sellers and researching about it through that. Like they're the curator. It's been kind of fun. When we talk about collecting objects, there is, of course, a necessity to make space for those objects. And that has an impact on another level have you do you consider that when you're collecting objects in terms of size and and how they can fit within your physical space or do you just go no I just need to find the space <laughs> sometimes if it's worth it I'll find the space but I'm starting to fill up a big cabinet I have and maybe I need to but it's fine I'll, I'll find more space I'll get a bigger studio if I need to no <laughs> um often I would try to have a practice of only taking what I really really felt strongly about I wanted that to be I didn't want to be one of these um collectors particularly in mudlarking that felt like they were coming away with bin bags full and 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 stripping the environment so I would only take I would maybe collect a handful of things or a bag full of small bag like sandwich bag full of things and then see what can I put back I would try to be selective not just because of space but you know environmental concerns but now I might yeah I might need to buy a new cabinet that's fine <laughs> Talking about value, you see value and your work repositions what others would describe as waste. So you don't, I don't think you approach certain materials as waste. In a world where waste poses significant sustainability challenges, what are your thoughts on the definition of waste for the materials and objects you transform and use? Yeah, so that's... That's interesting that you say that, you know, that it seems like the the things I choose, I don't perceive as waste. And I suppose it, I both do and don't see them as that. Like the fact that they were once waste is what draws me to them. You know, I think it's really interesting to notice what we throw away because it tells us a lot about value systems and it tells us a, it tells us a really interesting story. But I quite like then seeing the preciousness in it, removing this title of waste and kind of reimagining it. And and particularly the materials I choose at the moment, they're really, they're not very valuable and they never were, even when they were whole. But I think that they speak of this story of a kind of everyday person, uh, particularly the everyday person in London. And, and they slowly build up, particularly across uh, the city, as a kind of accidental memorial in a way you know they they uh what we don't care about paints a picture of us in a really interesting way so so yes I I, I really do like that it's waste but I like not seeing that anymore and and kind of throwing that away and 
and delving into the preciousness of it. Is there an, an activism element to this as well, where you want to sort of showcase the elements of this material or object or that sort of go beyond the fact that it's broken or it's it's lost its function? Is that something that's part of your practice or is it not consciously part of your practice? I would say, yeah, not consciously. That's not something, although I've often played with destroying the function of a piece or or kind of disrupting it, I see that disruption more of a way to question things around around value and value systems because I mean I work in I work in jewelry. I quite like undercutting the the convention of shiny, pretty stones and metals even though I do work with them sometimes it's quite nice to question that and the narratives it starts to build as well of like by noticing waste you start to pay attention to the unloved by paying attention to the unloved you start to look at narratives that maybe aren't talked about so in my other research I didn't work with any found objects at one point purely in lockdown and I actually just hold the story of of a rather kind of unloved and uncared for woman in history through by just making her jewellery and kind of thinking, okay, well, no one's talking about her and we don't have any objects of hers that exist anymore, so maybe I should make her some. And and that kind of care for and paying attention to the unloved, I think, opens a lot of interesting stories. And I think we're seeing that a lot in the way we tell history now, actually. You're seeing a lot of... Um, particularly more female perspectives on history and rewritings of historical or fictional narratives, which is really exciting. So I think it kind of lends itself more to that attitude. Uh, what we leave behind is often objects for family, for history. What we leave behind is genuinely one of my research questions last year. It's so fascinating to me because you, there's this, there's this real hope in human nature to want to leave a mark, to have something to outlive you and to, to like... In, in a way that tells a story. Um, and we're really good at protecting and and collecting things we perceive to be important. I mean, look at all of our museums, look at our collections, particularly of kind of royal paraphernalia. But the things that survive history are often of a certain class of person. That's why I think it's really exciting to look at the waste <laughs> sometimes. And, and that's what was mentioned in the previous podcast episode I think about urban mining you know uh, archaeology is looking at waste and, and unpicking the narrative and I think that's that's really fascinating too of, of not paying attention to what we thought was important at the time but to what we didn't notice. When you incorporate objects and materials in your work their identity is reconfigured in a piece could you tell us a bit more about these ethical considerations around reusing found objects how do you navigate questions around perhaps reappropriation as well recently and actually mostly through my work I try to create with objects that are very close to me both culturally and geographically you know these are ceramic and waste uh, glass waste uh, they're often mass-produced low-value items in the last 200 years and majoritively found in London, where I live and, and my family has lived for generations. So they feel very close to me. And I've re I've tried to keep that a little bit. But I, as I go forward and want to work more with more historical collections, I think it is really important to be self-aware of, of these questions of like trying to make sure that we are aware of the narratives we're telling and perpetuating. 
paying attention to sourcing uh, and, and how there's how things have been acquired. Uh, I think there's some really amazing museums that are doing this well. Uh, I know last episode mentioned Pitt Rivers and I love this museum, but um, a, con a contender for my other favourite museum might be the Horniman in London. Uh, if you haven't heard of it, I cannot recommend it enough. They really know what they're doing. They have an extremely big collection with lots of contentious items and yet they frame them and share them and and work with them in such an open and generous way connecting with the local communities and with a whole host of international um, research groups and museums and they I feel like they're taking a really exciting approach and I always kind of look to them so hope that future work of mine I'd be able to work with similar collaborators and curators I really love that and Kind of what we were talking about earlier comes into this as well, this this ability to tell the stories that aren't being told, I think really comes in interest here. The way we can start to reclaim and rewrite historical narratives that that are open to interpretation and that need to be reframed. So I, I do a lot of research at the moment into uh, memorials and monuments as a kind of material remainder of what's left behind you know how we pass on legacy and how that makes up the material of the city our architecture and I think it's really interesting to to notice that only a certain kind of person could afford such memorials and they're usually for a certain kind of person with with very little info about them as well so I'm starting to in a in one of my projects kind of reclaim the plaque uh, and, and create an offering of community engagement project where people can make their own plaque, their own commemoration and, and tell the stories they want to. Um, and that's where that's where some of my my research is leading as well. I think it's fascinating to speculate as to what's been missed from our, our, our concept of history. I think this is where your walks are also very interesting. The fact that you invite an audience in to come for a walk with you and yes you've prepared sort of the 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 things you want to discuss but you're open that hadn't occurred to me but I do really like that um that element of my work and, and I suppose one day I'd like to work with volunteers in a in a community or with a museum to write the walks because I think you know I, I have my own narratives that I've come up with but that's that's fine you know there's only so long people are going to want to listen to that or so many times I might want to do it instead I suppose, coming back around to my teaching, I like facilitating other people's exploration. So I'd like to work towards being able to turn it into a model where I can share this format and facilitate and bolster their research and their exploration of their environment. The incorporation of objects that have previously been made or designed by someone else, part of a ceramic pot, for example, if it wasn't mass produced, and even if it was mass produced, there may have been a designer behind it, can be considered a, a challenge to what perhaps is in general a questionable notion anyway of sole authorship. What are your thoughts on authorship as part of your artistic practice? I love this question because it's making me <laughs> it's making me really consider how loose my grip on authorship is. When I'm work like as you say, when I'm working with objects that are mass uh, manufactured there's less of a, of a feeling of the person's hand or their identity on it. So, so I kind of, uh, that, that fades away sometimes. And although I reflect on objects that are really lovingly handmade and I, and I kind of feel like I'm including them, 
but I'm adding to it. You know, I'm adding to the story or adding another chapter to this kind of material. And I see it as a collaboration with it as opposed to me changing it. Uh, it's another layer. And that's that's physically the case with my enameling where I I have certain amount of control and then I put it in the kiln and I really don't know what's going to come out. And I, I love that. So I have to let go of a certain sense of authorship there. And a lots of my work creates space for imagination and for the viewer to perceive what they want. And so I have to let go there. I have to go, okay, great. Let's go on a walk and see what you find. And, and each walk will be different. You know, each guest will come up with a new thing or have a different conversation along the route that changes the experience. So I feel like I've set myself up for a career where I don't have sole authorship and I, and I never wanted it. I, I like that. Uh, I like that collaboration with with uh, narrative, with object, with history. And it's it's um, and there's a certain humility about working with historical objects. I mean, in my research into really old items, you feel very small. You know, you you can look at a gravestone in the centre of London where the writing, the beautiful dedication that was put on it has now worn away and it's piled up in the corner of a of an old graveyard and no one no one knows anymore and no one cares about the story, which is sad, but the stone survives. So in a way, I have to have the humility to know that I've made an item and that glass will outlive me, but my story might not continue and I have to let go of that. So by accepting that, interplay you're hoping also that others have accepted that and that that will actually if we all allow that to happen then we free up the world for continuous reuse and reworking which is much more sustainable way of of continuing down the line than to continue making from scratch in a way yeah it's, it's also just a much more expansive way of looking at things you know, to to reduce objects and materials down to a single a single use or a single idea, it works sometimes. And there's artists who who are fantastic at it. But it it hopefully this kind of making that I do opens up to a, a broader and more imaginative and and generous way of viewing our materials and our world around us, and and a way that helps us connect uh, to material and connect to our own history in a way. Yeah. So finally, I wanted to ask if there is anything you are currently working on that you are willing to share with us that we could keep an eye out for. I think I've referenced most of these, but I can kind of clarify details. I've, I've sort of hinted at them. So the Beads of Gresham Street Walk, which I've mentioned several times, I will be reprising this um, this spring. So I had a certain amount of research that I could get done in my master's, but finals was a, was a hectic time. So I have since discovered more info I want to add to the walk. So watch this space. I will be doing another walk and they, um, they're all advertised on my website and Instagram and Eventbrite, things like that. So that I would, I really can't wait to just delve a little bit deeper into. And I, I mentioned previously this fascination with the way the river feels like an archive to me, or it feels like a collection that's already formed of its own, uh, a kind of accidental memorial of the city, of the of the everyday Londoner. And I'm through my research into that, I'm starting to develop a new walk, hopefully with a making element. We will see how that goes. And perhaps if you join me in the next year on that, you might make your own reflections along the way, maybe your own jewellery. 
I cannot guarantee anything because I'm still working on the logistics of that. And I mentioned some lace bobbins earlier in my eBay collections. Uh, and that's actually a whole other project looking at how we can connect with makers through time and by interacting with the tools and this kind of this feeling I have as a maker often when I use heritage skills of suddenly feeling so close to someone hundreds of years ago who made in the same way. And that's what I felt with the bead project. So I'm, I'm working with these lace bobbins and collaborating with a composer to make an interdisciplinary piece that we want to be performed in Nottingham where the lace market is, hopefully. And overall, yeah, I mean, my research, as we've been talking about today, it's really moving towards how we think about waste and, and starting to question, like, how have we perceived waste through time? And if I keep paying attention to this, if I keep digging deeper into that, the the emotions, the practicalities and the legality around waste, what does that start to tell me about our understanding of materials? And, and how is our sense of materiality changing and growing? And like, what does that mean in a climate emergency? Like, what does that mean for our future? Uh, and as a maker, what does that mean for us? You know, so that's that's the beginning of where my big long-term research is going, but I have these little projects going on in the meantime too. Objects and materials can spark curiosity, stimulate debates, and contain both human and non-human stories worth exploring and sharing. In a world full of objects, however, we sometimes lose our respect for them, ignore their agency, and regretfully look the other way when it comes to the impact of overproduction and consumption. As makers today, can we reframe the value of objects? Can we see opportunities in waste? So for taking us on a journey through her practice and research, exploring themes of memorial, heirloom, monument most recently, and the anthropocentric flaws and naivety of these, as she says herself, and for joining me today for this really valuable conversation. I want to thank you so much, Katie. Thank you so much too. It's been fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Next month, I'll be joined by another guest. So watch this space to find out who it is. But for now, this was Sophie Boons for the BAJ podcast episode titled Reframing Waste with Katie Gillam-Hull. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. <laughs>